You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Can you hear me? Great. Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 26. We'll start looking at that. But before we do that, I will just recap on where we were last week, which was Pete speaking about the uh, Lord's Supper. So to speak, and the centrality of that, so we'll be going from supper to suffering today, and we'll be looking at the cross. So we're going to kick off in Matthew 26, and we're going to start at verse 36. Um, Before we do that, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for what you've done. Just thank you for this time that we have together today. I just ask that you will help us understand what you've been through, why you've been through it, and how that helps us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, let's start reading. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 36. We've got a short period of time, so I'm going to fly through some of this stuff, and uh, I'm going to throw some verses at you. If you want to take notes, that's fine. If not, you can pick it up later on um, on the pod. If we have one, we do. Great. So, uh, Matthew chapter 26, starting from 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the uh, disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to, to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So let's just stop here. We'll carry on a little bit further later. So here we see that Jesus is looking toward the cross. And he's really anticipating a really bad experience. And at this point, all he's looking for are those people who are closest to him to simply be with him. That's all just to be with him. And um, it's a tough call. Um, I don't know if you've had uh, friends who have been through tough times and you just don't know what to say to them. You don't know how to respond. You don't know how to be that friend. You're kind of looking for the right words, looking, shall I bring a gift? Shall I WhatsApp them? What shall I do? And sometimes I've recognized and I see from this that sometimes it's just good enough to be there. Just being there is enough. Some of my best times uh, with friends have been sitting down in silence. (laughs) Just looking at each other going, well, (laughs) what do we do now? (laughs) Uh, But it's so important to have friendships. Just to have people around. And, you know, when you're looking forward to an event, I always think sometimes... The worst part of something, not in this case, but in normal life, the worst part of something is anticipation, looking forward to something. It's, it's horrible. 
Um, I remember I was, um, it was, I was 11. Okay, so let's, let's take this back. It was a few years ago now. And um, it was my first week at school. And um, first few days, you know, I've got my big starchy oversized suit on because it's September. Uh, and you know what it's like. All the kids go to school in September with clothes that are far too big for them because we want the kids, the clothes to last longer than it should. So my, 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 my sleeves are down to here. And uh, I'm really all starched up, you know, walking to school, uniform, everything on. And um, first three days, great, you know. Headmaster comes up, blows the whistle, you're in the school, you line up, you walk in, you go to the classroom. In those days, when people came into the classroom, you had to stand up. Ah, I bet none of you know that. And then uh, when the uh, head comes down, you sit down, and that's how it was. So the first three days, great. Then on, I think it was a Wednesday or Thursday, uh, the older kids who were at the school uh, actually come to the school because as a younger kid, you get there first. And um, I saw some kids from where I lived, and they were all on the grass playing football. Oh, yeah, that's me. So what did I do? I took my, took my jacket off, threw it to the side because you make goals with your jacket, and then you play football. One lunchtime, it was great. Now, as a footballer, I should still be playing for England. You need to know this. Anyway, I'm playing football, having the time of my life, then I hear a whistle blow, thinking it's time to go, and it wasn't. It was the headmaster. You boys line up my office. What did I do wrong? I'm playing football. I'm on the grass. What's, what's the problem? Now, I heard the silence with all these big, tough guys that I knew from outside of school, and they were trembling. We were going to get six of the best from the headmaster for playing on the grass, because in the morning, that Thursday or Wednesday morning, he told the senior boys, don't play on the grass. Not for this week, because he'd done something, and they were defiant. Little old me, my innocent self, my first week, I was at an assembly. I joined the big boys, but I got caught up with it. Now, why am I telling you this? Because it's about the anxiety of the future. I don't know if you've had this, but we had to wait outside the headmaster's office. Do you know what fear tastes like? I can tell you, if you get a battery and you put the end of the battery to your tongue, there's this kind of irony type of taste that happens. You get, you're standing up, but all of a sudden your legs feel a little bit weak. Your heart is pounding and the sweat on the inside of your palms. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Well, I've just got nothing to do with it, but it's just a good story. <laughs> well, this is what happens, and this fear is there, and, you know, you, you have to hand, hold your hands out. All the senior boys knew how to do it, but I didn't. So I'm doing this because I'm going to get caned. You don't, okay, this is going back some. I'm going to get caned, okay? And I'm like this because I don't want to get caned. All the other guys sort of do this, put their head that way. I'm like this, not wanting to get caned. So eventually, he holds it up, bang, bang, six of the best. Terrible. But the part I want to focus on is this fear thing. When you're looking forward to something and you know you have to go through it, there's something that is just so strong inside of you that is almost uncontrollable. It can create a shaking. It can really get to the very depths of who you are. And you need a friend and a friend isn't there. What do you do? Jesus did something. He prayed. 
He prayed. He got settled. He got in with his father. He said, look, I see what's coming. I see it. I feel it. I know what that pain's going to look like. He had anxiety. He was deeply sorrowful. He was troubled. Not on the fact that he's going to see the headmaster. This was the real serious stuff. I just want to say to you, if you're going through something or you're about to go through something or you're anxious about something or you've got a year ahead where you're not sure what's going to happen and you are gripped by this kind of fear, Jesus, one, knows exactly what you're going through. Two, he knows what to do. He's setting an example. He's saying communicate with the Father. Three, even if there's no friend available, you can go through it because Jesus is with you. So he moves on. He's in agony because he wants, he sees the future and he's battling with this. But he says, to the, he says in his prayer to the Lord, he's struggling. And I, I really like the honesty of the Bible. It's not like this is no big deal. I'm Jesus, I can do this. He's saying, if there's no, if it's possible, if there's another way, <laughs> I, I want to take this way out. If it's possible, if it's possible to deliver all the things that before time we agreed to do, if it's possible to do it, let's do it. But if not, I will, I choose to put my desires, my will, my comfort, my interest below yours, God, because we together are doing this for a greater good. I submit to your will. I still find that difficult. I still, I'll be honest with you. Are any of you in a situation right now where you're battling, you're praying about something? You're being honest with yourself and with God. And there's a submission to God's will going on. There's a fight going on in the inside. You want to go left, God's saying, no, you know you should be going right, or vice versa. It's very, very tough. Work it through in prayer, in conversation. And Jesus says, not my will, but yours. So we move us further on. Let's look at verse, 20, uh, verse 46 of chapter 26. So he's praising the garden, and then he says, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, whoever, whoever, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid his, their hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, his friend, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? So here we have Jesus who is betrayed. Now, I don't know, this is, I've, I've realized over the years that one of the things that drive me, one of the things that motivate me is I'm a values-driven person. I like achievement, I like, a, I like accomplishment, but actually if you want to really, really, really um, turn me over, 
you have to hit one of my values, one of the things that I hold dear. And this would hit me hard because his betrayer, the person who actually brought him to this place in a physical sense, was someone who he laughed with, someone he shared time with, someone he walked with, someone who, you know, he, he, he spent three years with someone, each of them knowing. You know, if someone on the street says to me, hey, Paul, you know, you've got bad breath, <laughs> I really wouldn't mind that much. They don't know me. But if someone much closer said to me, hey, Paul, you've got bad breath, <laughs> that means something. Why? Because they know me. They see me. They're close to me, quite literally. And so when someone who's close says something that's meaningful to you, does something that's hurtful to you, it goes much deeper than someone far away. When someone who you trust has betrayed that trust, it goes much deeper. It goes to your very soul. And some of you have had betrayal. Some of us have had betrayal. And it's gone to the very, very core of who we are. And I wonder if we can reply as Jesus did to Judas where he called him my friend. What was he thinking of? My friend. Someone who's close, but he betrayed him. It's very, very tough to take. So that happens. And uh, Jesus was not powerless at this point. It wasn't like he couldn't do anything. And I want to say, when you actually read around this, it says there were approximately 600 at the most, 600 people in this group that came to, with clubs, etc., to begin to arrest Jesus. Now, Jesus says this, what are you doing? Don't fight. Do you not realize at this point I could call 12 legions of angels there at my disposal? Twelve legions is about 72,000 warrior angels, all ready in heaven, swords up <laughs> at, the, at one word to come and change the situation, at Jesus' word. So Jesus, whilst being betrayed, is not powerless. He's making a choice. He's going with this. He's not going out to destroy his enemies. He's going out to save his enemies. The very person who's betrayed him, who's hurt him so deeply, whose words and whose kiss, such a personal thing, is so intense, that goes to the very core of a person. He's not going to strike back at that person. He's going to save that person. What a contradiction. What a God we serve. What a model he produces for us to follow. Isn't that crazy? That is like turning the other cheek times ten. And that's what he does. And then in verse 56, one line, all the disciples fled. All the disciples fled. It doesn't get better. It's, it's like a tragedy. One thing, then another thing, then betrayal, and then all you've got no friends, and then you really have, they've actually ran away and left you alone. We have complete desertion and isolation. He is alone because his friends have forsaken and fled. I just want to say to you again, there's many people I know who would have experienced this. 
they feel alone. The friends might be there, but perhaps they put some distance between you. Something's happened in your life. I remember talking to a friend just some weeks, uh, months ago. He lost his job. Very well-connected friend of mine. Very, really, really cool guy. Uh, lost his job. And you know what he said to me? He said, it's really funny, Paul. When I've lost my job, so few people take my calls. All these people who are out networking with him, who we go around the world and we meet in different places and we do loads of stuff together. He really got close with Carl. And uh, it's like, okay, now he's not in a job. Now he's not got influence and power of that role. All of a sudden, everyone's fled. How lonely that position is. How lonely that position is. Let's read on. 59, verse 59. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So here we have a situation whereby he's now alone, he's gone through betrayal, he's been deserted, he's isolated, and now we have false accusations, lies, slander, Trump would say fake news being brought together, and you've got people who are being both prosecutor, judge, judge and jury on someone. We have a miscarriage of justice going on here. We have injustice going on here. We've got everyone baying on the right, on, the, on one side. But it doesn't mean just because everyone is saying something that it's right. It does not mean that. And I've seen this, and you may have seen this at work, where in the past you've had a situation where many people take up the comment of the time. Oh, it must be this person, or it must be that person. And all of a sudden it's right to go with that flow. But you and I know, actually, that's not quite right to do that. The evidence isn't there. Someone's got to stand up and say, hey, 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 no. Someone's got to stand up for righteousness. Someone's got to stand up and say, this is not the way to do things. But quite often, it's convenient, isn't it, to go with the popular sentiment of the time. To go with what the boss is saying and what the colleagues are saying because the person who is being victimized is the one with least power in the organization. I'm challenging that right now because that on a bigger scale happened to Jesus. He was unfairly uh, accused, unfairly victimized, unfairly done. It was a complete miscarriage of justice which went on. And to be that person isn't right. Jesus could have opened his mouth and said no, but he didn't. He went through with it. There's a reason why. Because he wasn't there to defend himself. He was there to defend us before the Father. He had a greater purpose. His purpose was not about him. His purpose was about all of those who have not yet seen the light. And I just wonder as a model for us, when we hear things formally or informally, when we hear these small conversations where everyone's making assumptions about someone else who often isn't in the conversation, how do we respond Will we be the ones who will call it out and say, no, 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 stop. This is, I'm with you, but this is going in the wrong direction. Let's bring the person in the room and get the other side of the story. 
How often can we do that? How often can we be salt and light on an everyday basis, in an everyday conversation? To bring truth, to bring justice, to bring righteousness into that situation that we're facing every day. To stop someone from being a victim. Jesus remained silent. And it's so interesting, in the public arena, we always want, I want to control my public perception. I want to control how I look on Facebook, on Instagram, on, if you Google my name, what comes up. I want to control all of that. I want to control all of my public perception because I want to present myself as I want to present myself to the world. Here's Jesus, and he's saying nothing. With all the false accusations going on, he's saying nothing. Because he doesn't worry about he, how he is presented to the world. He wants to present you to the Father righteous. He wants to present you to the Father as pure. He wants to present you to the Father, not as a sinner, but as sinless through the righteousness of Christ. So, let's move on. Let's move on. Verse 65 to 68. Sorry, we've done that. Uh, uh, let's, let's move on to uh, further on where Judas actually gets a little bit guilty and he says, uh, actually, you know what? He's innocent. He's innocent. But the, the, the chief Pharisees don't care. That's your problem. And then we go on. Pilate, he goes to the next court. Pilate actually then has him. And Pilate says, hey, are you guys sure? Because I can't find anything wrong with this man. Crucify him, crucify him. But I can't find anything wrong with him. Crucify him. Pilate gets a letter from his wife. Don't have anything to do with him because he is innocent. He's declared innocent so many times. Yet, the greatest miscarriage of justice happens here. Where he just says, you know what? He might be innocent, nothing to do with me. I wash my hands of it, carry on. It's interesting how we can be passive and contributing to a wrong. I'm challenging me, I'm challenging us. Passivity. To allow something to happen for our own convenience. On an everyday basis, in your home, at work, with your conversations, who's going to stand up for righteousness' sake? Who's going to put their head above the parapet and say, no, no, it's wrong. This is not the right way of doing things. Who's going to call it out the way it should be? Jesus submitted for the greater will of the Father. He was basically self-sacrificed, and that's really where that ends. And then he gets handed over, verses 27 to 31, of chapter 27. I won't read it for speed. But he gets handed over to the soldiers, where he's brutally, physically tortured, humiliated, disfigured in a great sense, where he's punched and he's, I mean, almost unrecognizable. And this is a very brutal thing. Now, you've got to think about this in stages. You layer, first of all, friends not there. You layer betrayal on top of that. You layer um, on top of that desertion and isolation. You layer on top of that the fact that he is, uh, uh, mis- there's a miscarriage of justice. You layer on top of that he knows he's innocent, but he opens up not his mouth. And they know he's innocent, but they uh, have passivity. And then you layer on top of that 
physical, brutal treatment. Now, these soldiers, Catherine and I were in Israel, gosh, a long time ago, right? 10, 15 years longer. I won't say how long. Too long ago. And we're on this bus. It's really funny. We're on this bus and like we're, you know, just having a good time. And um, so these uh, soldiers get on. They're not, they're like in civil uniforms, but these got, got these guns and everything. And I'm sat down being bouncy on me. And a guy walks on and he just turns on the, <laughs> he turns on the, on the, on the, on the coach or van, whatever it was. And the, the butt of the gun just sort of touches me, ever so slightly, touches me on the head, ever so slightly. I mean, really, it hurt. It so hurt. It was not intentional, but it knocked my head. It felt I, it was almost like dizzy. It was crazy. I know pain of a gun butt, I can say. <laughs> but <laughs> that was not intentional. When soldiers are battering and beating and boxing and using clubs and all the rest of it and putting a crown of thorns on your head, etc., this is real. This is pain on top of emotional pain. It's not just the physicality of it. It's the physicality on top of what's happened before. And on top of that, it says in Isaiah 53... He's carrying a bigger burden, and that burden of the sins of the world. Laid on top of all of that. That is all our guilt, all our shame, the wages of sin, which is death, the punishment of sin, the price of wrongdoing, all laid on him. Now, at this point, at his greatest point of weakness, this is what happens. He's on the cross. And there's jeering and there's mocking. And people are saying this. If you're the son of God, come on down. Come on down. Now you've got to, you've got to really understand this. All his ministry, this has been an ongoing conversation. And now he is fulfilling the father's will. And they're saying, if you are who you say you are, come down off the cross. That is temptation. Because he could have called 72,000 angels. He has the power to come off the cross. But this is not that kind of temptation. Because this happened back in Luke 4. At the beginning of his ministry when he was sent into the wilderness. What happened? If you are the son of God, throw yourself down because you'll be protected by the angels. If you are the son of God, Change these rocks into lots of bread. If you are the Son of God, worship me and I will give you all these kingdoms. The same temptation, the same struggle, spiritual warfare that was going on at the beginning of his ministry, right at the cross, was coming back to him again. Trying to drive a wedge between him and the Father. Trying to drive a wedge, creating disobedience. Trying to drive a wedge to distract him, to divert him, to dilute what his mission was. If you are the Son of God, come on down. Come off the cross. Come on, come off the cross. It's easier because the pain of being on that cross is so great. The pain now means that you want to run off that cross. Anything that you want to do, do it now because now's a good convenient to escape route. How tempting is that? 
What else? Well, if you come off the cross, well, you'll actually, you'll be able to prove to everybody else. So if you rationalize it, it's actually a good idea, isn't it? Come on down off the cross. It's not when he's strong and weak and he's just read the Bible and he's had worship and it's feeling great. It's at his weakest point when this temptation comes. Now, how often have we got a mission and a purpose from God and we are asked by our friends to divert from it? We just said, come on, why are you doing this? It's costing you too much. Come on, why don't you do it another way? Why don't you do it a different way? Why don't you come off that cross? The burden's too hard for you to bear. To bear. God's call on your life is too much for you to deliver. Why don't you come off? Why don't you change direction? Why don't you do something else? How often has that come? How often has it come whereby you're doing a great work? You're doing something, but it's tiring. It's costing you. And everything in your being is saying, I want to stop. And so it says, why don't you take a rest? Why don't you come down from what you're doing? Why don't you hold up? You're a Christian. You've been standing as a Christian witness in your place of work. But now it's becoming, there's too much friction going on. It's really hard. You really are tired. You've been holding the fort for such a long time. And all the temptation is to come down from that place of goodness. Come down from that cross. Come down from that purpose. Stop doing what you're doing. There's a way out. And that way out can seem so reasonable. It might even look good. It might even have a temporary win. Something that looks good today, but it actually doesn't flow through to the purposes of God for eternity. Jesus was looking beyond that moment. He was looking beyond that point. He was looking beyond that hour and that day and that three hours. He was looking forward into eternity. He was looking to today and beyond. He was looking at your face and my face. He was looking at your sin and my sin. He was looking at your need for deliverance and my need for deliverance. He was looking for your situation and my situation and he would not come down. He would not come down. He stayed there. He stayed there. It's interesting. Attack identity. Attack relationship. And you might be being attacked right now. You might have your call and your purpose locked down in your soul, locked down in your mind, locked down into your intellect. And all of a sudden now, you've got doubts and you've got things coming in. I just want to encourage you. You know what you know. You know your God. You know the one who's delivered you. You know the one who's called you. You know the one who saved you. You know the one who's kept you. You know the one who you are relying on. You know the one in whom you have confidence. Do not come down. Do not come down. Do not come down. With all that's going on, do not come down. God has saved you and called you for a purpose. He has determined your life. He has determined your steps. Before you were born, he knew who you are. He knows your name. He knows your DNA. He knows your character. He knows your nature. There's nothing about you that he doesn't know. He knows every hair on your head. He knows the color of your eyes. He knows where you live. He knows how you sleep. He knows when you get up. He's there before you wake. He's there when you have woken. He knows you and he has called you. Please keep going. Don't come down. Do not come down. Do not come down. 
God has called you for a purpose. He has saved you for a purpose. There's a guy called Nehemiah in the Bible. He was, he was doing some crazy stuff in a, in, in a palace and then he got a bit miserable and someone said, why are you miserable? He said, oh, because the walls of Jerusalem are not built and it's where I come from. So the prince said, hey, look, okay, no problem. Go, go back, rebuild the walls. So he goes back, he starts rebuilding the walls. There's a couple of enemies there. One's called a guy called Sanballat. I love that name. If you've got looking for a name of a son, Sanballat's a good name. So Sanballat is there and Sanballat, hey, it's a good name. No one else has got it. Sanballat's there and doesn't like the fact what Nehemiah is doing. So he says, hey, Nehemiah, what are you doing? And he says, I'm rebuilding the walls. He says, oh, hey, Nehemiah, don't bother building the walls. It's no use. It's, it's rubbish. Leave it. And he says, no, no, I'm going to build the walls. Sambalas says, no. So he keeps coming against him. He keeps opposing Nehemiah. Nehemiah just ignores him. Then he, he, then he has a little bit of attack. So Nehemiah starts getting his people with a bit of uh, sand in one hand, Bible and sword in the other. And he starts to defend all the rest of that. And then Sanballat goes this, he goes, he says this, okay, look, Nehemiah, <sighs> let's have a meeting, let's have a parley, let's talk. And Nehemiah says, I'm not going to do it, I'm not coming down, because I'm doing a good work. I'm not even going to pause to talk to you. You are here to distract me, to divert me, to stop me from, to oppose me, to stop me from doing what God has called me to do. I am going to do a good work. I am not coming to you. I am not coming down. Guys, do not be distracted. Do not be diverted. Do not dilute. Just keep doing what you're doing and love God and keep doing it. Do not come down. Do not come down. So, um, why did Jesus stay on the cross when he could have called 72,000 angels? Let me just go through very, very quick. I'm going to give you verses and then we're going to land. One, the Father's love. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The Father's love kept Jesus on the cross. Romans 3, 23 to 26, the same. The Father's love kept Jesus on the cross. What else? Jesus' love kept Jesus on the cross. John 15, 3. It says, greater love has no one than this, that a man lays down his life for his friend. He calls himself the good shepherd. He knows that a shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's John 10, 11, 18. Jesus' love kept him on the cross. What else? Jesus' submission to the Father's will. They had an agreement before, and he Jesus and God, they decided that he would, this would be the plan of salvation. He's keeping to that. Philippians 2, 6, 8 and Matthew 26, 39 demonstrates Jesus' submission to the Father's will. What else? Hebrews 9, 22 to 28 and Isaiah 53, 47 shows that our sin kept him there. Jesus was the sinless sin bearer. He took all of the stuff that you don't want anyone to know about, all the guilt, all the shame, all the sin, all the stuff that we carried, he took it on his back and that pinned him to the cross. There was an exchange that happened and I thank God for it. I thank God for it, you know. Uh, this is us. We're carrying around, it's not that heavy, we're carrying around our heavy bags of sin. All the time, time and time again. But then it comes to the cross. 
and we can put our heavy bag of sin on Christ and walk away free and leave it with him. That's why he stayed on the cross. He stayed on the cross to bear our sin. To bear our sin. And finally, whilst because of the harvest of many, Hebrews 12, 2, he made himself a ransom for many. He looked forward for that. Matthew 20, 28, Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 11. And also securing the benefits of salvation. That's in Colossians 1, 21, 31. And Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. What do I mean by that? I mean, by his stripes we are healed. What do I mean? We have deliverance. We have forgiveness. We have protection. We have provision. All of this is purchased at the cross of Jesus Christ. I just want to say this, guys. Do not come down from where God has asked you to be. He went through so much for us because he first loved us. We can also continue to love him because he went through so much for our salvation. God demonstrated his great love for us that whilst we were sinners, Christ died for us. You may not be a Christian here today, yet. <laughs> you may not be. And, uh, you know, we all were there. And quite frankly, Christ died for you whether you wanted him to or not. Because he loved you, he loves you, and he's given you a gift of salvation. That's what he's done here. That's why he did it. Now, we sang a song earlier on that says, it was my sin that held him there. We sang a song that talked about us being one, mocking and jeering. And, you know, whether we th were there or not, we are sinners without Christ. And with Christ, he bears our sin and makes us free. There's an opportunity for you to accept his gift of salvation. To accept the fact that he did this for you so you could be free. So you don't have to carry around the guilt, the shame, all the things that you wish you'd have forgiveness for. Christ has done this to set you free. God bless.